From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour, starring Tom Sherwood. I'm Kojo Namdi. Tom Sherwood is back with us this week. He's our resident analyst and contributing writer for Washington City Paper. Tom Sherwood, welcome back. Hello, everybody. Joining us later in the broadcast will be Angela Alsobrooks, the Prince George's County Executive. Joining us now is Megan Hatcher-Mays, Director of Democracy Policy for Indivisible. Megan Hatcher-Mays, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kojo and Tom. It's a, it's a real honor. This will be a conversation about statehood for the District of Columbia, Tom Sherwood. Before we get to statehood, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam has apparently restored voting rights for those with felony convictions. Of course, people with felony convictions in Maryland already got their voting rights back as soon as their sentences are completed. The same in the district. I remember the late, great P.D. Green, when he was still alive, um, had a talk show, and when he saw that piece of legislation, he tinkled the bell and said, hey, hey, that's me. Um, what's, going, what's going on in Virginia, Tom? Well, uh, Governor Northam is following in the footsteps of former Governor Terry McAuliffe, who tried to give a blanket uh, uh, restoration of rights, but the Virginia State Supreme Court said they had to be considered individually. And so that's what the governor has done for 69,000 people. The Virginia legislature has passed a bill to automatically restore voting rights to felons once their sentences are completed, but it has to pass the legislature again, and it has to be a referendum. And in the district, the, the just this past year, the, the council passed a law that would Say, even if you're a felon, you can vote even while you're incarcerated. And as you mentioned, Maryland restores the rights automatically after your sentence has been served, except in the case if you've been convicted of a felony involving uh, voting. So it's, it's a good progress. You know, across the country, more and more states are recognizing that once a person serves his or her uh, term in prison, incarceration, they should be given back the right to vote if they shouldn't lose it to begin with. Megan Hatchamaze, does Indivisible have a position on this issue? And if not, what is your feeling about it? Uh, we do have a position on it. We absolutely think people who um, are returning to society, people who were formerly incarcerated, should have their rights restored. There's really no reason to continue to deny people access to democracy. Um, and frankly, people who are currently incarcerated should have the right to vote. I mean, they are counted um, as part of the census, so they should have a say in the government as well. So yeah, we strongly support that. Unfortunately, an amendment to include that in the For the People Act uh, was not successful, but that's definitely something that uh, we're fighting for. And Tom Sherwood, every time D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine appears on this broadcast, you ask him about his future plans, his political plans specifically. Well, now, apparently he is being considered for chair of the Federal Trade Commission by the Biden administration. He hasn't really acknowledged that he is, but it's clear that he is. Yes, there was a major step this week for Carl Racine, who's in his second term as elected attorney general. He was, he's, uh, he's acknowledged that he would consider something in the Biden administration in the past. And there have been various reports in the media that he would be being considered for chair of the Federal Trade Commission. But this week, 
at the University of the District of Columbia giving the 28th annual Joe Rao uh, lecture. He was asked, I have to say I submitted the question during this Zoom <laughs> event, how, he was asked about, you know, what his plans are. And I'm just going to, it's a very, I'm going to read you, he's talked longer than I am, uh, but I'm going to read you what he said. This is a definitive statement. He is not going to run for a third term as attorney general, whether he gets the FTC position or not. Uh, this is what he said on the, in, on the UDC program. Quote, uh, I'm sorry, it's very short. Quote, I've got to tell you, I really think that two terms is enough. And there are other talented people who have a lot to add. So I'm leaning against two times has been fantastic. Let somebody else do it. Now, that's not the language of someone who's considering running for a third term, whatever happens next. Is he considering running for higher office, like mayor? Well, everybody, there, there are many people, oh boy, the Twitter world blew up when I reported this on Twitter. You know, people wanting to run against Mayor Bowser. Uh, some people have suggested he should wait and run for governor if the, if the city becomes a state. That he should run for a U.S. senator. Uh, there's a lots of what-ifs, what-ifs. He's indicated clearly that he's going to return to private practice, take a position in the, in the federal government, Uh, or possibly run for mayor, or possibly <laughs> run for a third term. But this week, he, he pretty much eliminated running for a third term. He's, he, it's quite the guessing game. And what's going on between the Attorney General's office and former D.C. Council member Jack Evans over unpaid ethics fines? Well, not a lot that's uh, going on at this moment, but I'll tell you, Mitch Riles of the Washington City Paper reported that Jack Evans, who resigned his office last January in 2020 uh, over ethics issues before he could be expelled by the council, uh, owes, uh, has owes two payments to the district government for ethics violations. $20,000 was due in December. About $30,000 is due in June. Uh, The city paper headline said that the Office of Attorney General was considering suing Evans because he did not make the December payment of $20,000. I read the story. The story is accurate, but the headline is not correct according to my sources. Uh, Evans, apparently in November, with the first payment due, uh, wrote a letter uh, to the uh, Board of Ex Ethics, sorry, Board of Ethics, uh, asking that his payments be stretched out over a period of time on a payment plan, and that's still under consideration. As we said, our guest is Megan Hatcher-Mays, Director of Democracy Policy for Indivisible, and we'll be talking about statehood with her. Megan Hatcher-Mays, what is Indivisible, and what do you do there as the Director of Democracy Policy? Yes, well, as the Director of Democracy Policy, I'm sure you can imagine my job is very easy. <laughs> Just kidding, <laughs> it is difficult. Um, our, you know, obviously our democracy has taken several body blows over the last four years or so, and so... What we're trying to do is get our democracy back on track. So Indivisible is a grassroots organization, uh, thousands of groups across the country in all 50 states, actually, who, um, you know, at this point, at this stage in the game, they have their member of Congress's contact information saved in their phones. Um, they're fighting in all 50 states to build up and protect our democracy on the local and on the federal level. So that's what we're focused on now that we have a democratic trifecta. When and why did Indivisible make D.C. statehood a priority? You know, statehood has always been really central to um, Indivisible's mission. Uh, it's just 
the politics were complicated. <laughs> so we started in 2016 after the election of Donald Trump. That's what motivated a lot of our um, group leaders to join our movement was, you know, resisting the Trump agenda and fighting back against kind of the Trump's worst impulses. So um, we started looking really seriously at, you know, on, in the Trump years, it was all about defense, right? It was all about kind of protecting um, what we could, given that we didn't have uh, control of the government at the time. Um, but statehood was always really critically important. It's a really significant, really important democracy reform. I think it's important for people to think of it um, that way, in addition to being obviously a critical racial justice issue as well. Um, but, you know, now we're in a different world. We have uh, control of the Senate and control of the House. Joe Biden is in the White House. And so this is an opportunity for us to run some offense. And so um, structural democracy reforms like the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are obviously really uh, important to push for and fight for. But we really think that statehood is one of the most important, if not the most important, democracy reforms because it would go such a long way in ensuring that, um, you know, the Senate actually works the way that it should. Tom Sherwood. Well, you know, as I've said on this program, Kojo, uh, as a district citizen, I'm for the statehood for the district. But as a journalist, analyst, uh, the support for statehood has risen and fallen more times than a thermometer. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it's uh, This week we're talking about it because there's another House hearing on Monday, um, about statehood for the district and this past year in 2020 the house uh, historically passed the, uh, statehood for the district of columbia of course we all know it's been hung up in the senate and it still has a problem there i was just looking on twitter uh, mark seagraves from nbc4 posted some video the mayor mayor bowser has lined pennsylvania avenue today with 50 with u.s flags with 51 stars and so there is a lot of uh, enthusiasm right now that the House will once again, with, uh, with Speaker Pelosi's strong backing, is going to vote again pretty soon on statehood. But it's still not clear, and this will be a question to Megan, who, thank you for being on the show, the Senate is the roadblock. When Republicans were in charge, it was clearly a roadblock. The Senate now, you don't have 60 votes for to overcome a filibuster in the Senate for statehood. If it were to come to a vote, would you support eliminating the filibuster so that statehood could pass with 51 votes, perhaps a vote by the vice president? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, we're obviously strongly in favor of just getting rid of it across the board. I mean, I think there are very few progressive priorities that you could uh, earn the support of 10 Republicans for, but especially not democracy. I mean, democracy reform, the, the status quo, you know, the current system benefits Republicans a great deal, despite the fact that they make up kind of like a minority of the people who actually vote. You know, we have Democrats who are representing tens of millions more people than Republicans do. So there, there's no incentive for Republicans to change any of that. They want to kind of keep things the same. So we don't really see a path forward for statehood without getting rid of the filibuster or you know, whatever reform is necessary to make that happen with 51 votes. But Tom, you're totally right. You know, this issue has been up and down. We've been really close in the past, like really painfully close, and we haven't been able to get it across the finish line. But this just really feels like a different time. I mean, this, this Senate feels a lot more aggressive than Senates and trifectas past. So it's still, you know, it's an uphill climb. It's going to require okay. a lot of work. We still need to get some some stragglers, some uh, Democratic senators who are not yet sponsors of the bill. We need to get them on the bill. 
and then we need to get rid of the filibuster to make that happen. You know, if no you, state if you, has if been. You got, got to take a short break, so I'm going to have to oh, interrupt sorry. you both. Uh, we'll be taking a break very shortly. But if you have a question or comment, um, do you think the Senate should get rid of the filibuster or not? Give us a call at 800-433-8850. I'm Kojo Namdi. Welcome back. We're talking with Megan Hatcher, Mays, Director of Democracy Policy for Indivisible. We're talking about D.C. statehood. And Tom Sherwood, I interrupted you while you were attempting to interrupt Megan, so it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there, in a nutshell, is the politics hour. And, and Megan, if, if the Democrats were to remove the filibuster and just pass things at 51%, Minority Leader uh, McConnell of, of Kentucky and others have said, well, if you do that, and if we re- regain the majorities in de- in 2022, um, then we will take actions that the Democrats will not like. And in fact, one of the statehood supporters was telling me that if this passes the Senate by 51 votes, that in 2023... 2020- Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at org slash book club. Three, if the Republicans win back the, the, the House and Senate, they simply will pass a law to stop statehood in its track. It'll take several years to transition from our current government to an elected government with elected senators and elected House member and to set up the, the form of government. But aren't you playing a dangerous game that if, if the Democrats steamroll the Congress to give statehood to the district, uh, then it could be wiped out before it even happened? Yeah, there are a couple things on that. I mean, I think, first of all, no state has been subject to the filibuster prior to admission to the union. I, I just don't think that that's a hurdle that we should have to jump over in order to become a state. I understand that, you know, Mitch McConnell has like threatened to go scorched earth. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how that's different than how he already behaves, to be honest with you. Um, and I think it's just been the case that McConnell, anytime a Senate rule stands in Mitch McConnell's way, he gets rid of it. The only reason he hasn't gotten rid of the filibuster for legislation in the past is because he hasn't needed to get rid of the filibuster for legislation in the past. But when it interfered, when the filibuster interfered with Mitch McConnell's top priorities, which were um, Supreme Court justices, he did get rid of the filibuster in order to confirm Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. So I think what we're looking at here is um, this is an opportunity. Um, We don't know how long this trifecta is going to last. And so we really need to go big and go bold and not govern too much from a place of fear, like how might Mitch McConnell retaliate very good chance he's going to retaliate whether we get rid of the filibuster or not. Okay. <laughs> so we okay. might as Thank well go for that, it. Thank you very much. That's good. And let me, I want to, a lot of people may not know you. Thank you. Well, thank you for being on the program. You sure. have, in fact, worked for Eleanor, you worked for Eleanor Holmes Norton, the delegate, for three years. Uh, this will be her crowning achievement as she's been mm-hmm. the delegate since 1991. Um, 
This would be a crown, the crowning achievement if she were to uh, possibly get statehood. Um, so in your three years as working for Ms. Norton, was this an issue for you also? Did you particularly be involved in this? Yeah, so obviously it's a huge priority for the whole office. Um, I helped out. I did my small part, of course. Um, you know, I think nobody has done more for the issue of statehood than the Congresswoman. Um, this would be an incredible achievement after, you know, working on this for so long and really kind of moving this issue from like a slogan on a license plate to really kind of a mainstream thing that lots and lots of people support. Um, it would be really amazing uh, to see that finally happen. Well, Roger sent us an email, D.C. statehood, not now, not ever, never. Just give D.C. residents the right to vote and call it done. But here is Doug in Chinatown. In Chinatown, Doug, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Great program. Um, I just want to affirm some of the comments that were said. Like um, one of your guests just noted that the GOP has done away with the filibuster in times past. And I, I read this as a tragedy of the commons racing to the bottom. I think the filibuster is degrading already anyway. Either party will get rid of parts of it as needed. Um, in my opinion, it's something of a perversion of a historical accident, and it, it doesn't really serve our nation. And I, I think it should go entirely. If if you have won all three houses or the two houses of the Congress and the presidency, you have the right to rule, and that applies for both sides. As far as D.C. statehood, absolutely D.C. statehood. There's, I, I don't see any reason why D.C. shouldn't be a state. The people have the right to vote in Congress. Um, the people have the right to be full-blown citizens. Uh, thank you for taking my comment. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your comment. Parker from Ransom, West Virginia, emails, Megan. He says, I'd what, I would wait until after the midterm elections. History shows that Republicans will retake the House at midterm elections. That would be a disaster if the filibuster was non-existent. To which, Megan Hatchamez, you say what? Um, I say we are on solid ground until at least 2024. If that happens, which we hope does not um, uh, happen in 2022, where we would lose control of either the House or the Senate, we still would have Joe Biden in the White House to veto any tomfoolery. And I think we need to take advantage of the majority that we've got in hand right now. Um, Walk us through what ending the filibuster would look like. Who are the Democrats who do not support ending the filibuster and what are their concerns? Yeah, I think the most vocal, um, probably Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. I think Joe Manchin actually has shown some pretty positive movement kind of in the right direction on this. He went from saying never, ever, ever will I vote to get rid of the filibuster to, well, maybe I would if we, maybe I would support some reforms that would still give the minority a say. They would still be able to participate in a debate about pieces of legislation. Uh, so he seems to be in favor of bringing back the talking filibuster, the sort of Mr. Smith goes to Washington version of the filibuster. That's a little less than ideal because it still wastes a lot of time and would obstruct quite a bit of Senate business, but better than nothing. Uh, seems to be That seems to be Kirsten Sinema's issue with it. Well, well. Indiv- Indivisible launched a For the People campaign that included ads promoting D.C. statehood in certain states. Let's take a listen. D.C. statehood. It's not about politics or politicians. It's about creating a more perfect union. It's about representation and self-governance for D.C.'s 700,000 residents. The teachers, nurses, firefighters, families who pay taxes, find cures, and keep us safe. 
It's about racial justice and giving a voice and a vote to a historically black city. With DC statehood, we can fix our democracy and make Congress work for all of us. And we can do it now by passing HR 51. Call your representative today. Megan, who were these ads targeting and what platforms did you use to run them? Uh, we, they ran uh, primarily digitally, um, so YouTube, um, Twitter, places like that. Uh, and they were run in Arizona, uh, Montana, Colorado, just places where we want to make sure that the senators there know that this is an important issue. Um, they're also hearing, obviously, directly from their constituents, too, in addition to the ads that we've been running. Um, this is just something that And we also just wanted to portray a more realistic version of the district than people might sometimes be getting uh, out in the world from more conservative politicians. So, Tom Sherwood? You know, one of the uh, clearly racial discrimination has been part of the uh, denial of voting rights for, for and stated to the district. But the, the, the U.S. Constitution in creating the District of Columbia in its Article 1 gave Congress, quote, exclusive legislative authority over the district. And it said at the time that the Congress wanted to play, it had come from Philadelphia where, where citizens had, had demonstrated against the Congress, and they wanted a place where they could be free of any of the states in, uh, having power over them. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the members of Congress still say, you know, why should the district shrink the federal district to a very a few blocks? and give statehood, why not go back to Maryland? I think the Maryland <laughs> idea is stupid because Maryland doesn't want us. But what about the idea that the Congress should should have a neutral place not affected by states? Yeah, it's kind of ironic, right, that the, the capital moved from Philadelphia to the, what is now the district um, because of this sort of like violent mob that had kind of <laughs> held members of Congress hostage. And then you compare that to the, you know, response on January 6th. It's like, well, the size of the federal district did not, uh, was, is not the issue, right, as far as keeping members of Congress safe. Um, so I really think that's a silly argument. You know, there's nothing, I have my pocket constitution right here. And I think there's nothing in don't there that says, it. Oh. Don't read it, don't read it. No, I'm against the filibuster, Tom. I will not be filibustering on this show. But, you know, okay. I don't think, you know, I just think that that's a silly argument. It does, the smallness of the federal district is is not a real What about retrocession? Problem. What about retrocession oh. to Maryland? Um, well, I you know, we love our neighbors in Maryland. We do. And I'm sure they, they love us as well. But it's a thanks, but no thanks for me. Um, you know, I think the people of Maryland have said thanks, but no thanks. Every single member except for Andy Harris of the Maryland delegation is a supporter of D.C. statehood. It's just not a serious argument. Uh, so no, thank you. Although I love I, you, I, Maryland. I, 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 I'm I afraid that's about all the time we have. <laughs> I said, he said as he interrupted Tom again. <laughs> Megan Hatcher-Mace, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Kojo and Tom. It was a real pleasure. Up next, Angela, also Brooks Prince George's County Executive. You can start calling for her now with praise or denunciations. 800-433-8850 is the number. I'm Kojo Namdi.
Welcome back, and welcome to Angela Alsobrooks. Angela Alsobrooks is the Prince George's County Executive. Angela Alsobrooks, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, I always enjoy coming on. And now that you have invited your listeners, you said to um, to either praise or denunciate. That was hilarious. <laughs> so, thank you it won't be so hilarious me. when they start the denouncing. 800-433-8850 is the number to call. Tom Sherwood, I am sure that there are a lot of Prince Georgians who work at the U.S. Capitol, and I know a few who work on the Capitol Police, but 12 Republicans opposed congressional gold medals for the police who protected them, which included the Metropolitan Police Department, the Capitol Police, Smithsonian Institution. Um, What was going on? Why would they not want to give congressional gold medals to those brave people? Well, there's, there, there is an effort by some, mostly Republicans, to uh, redefine what happened on January the 6th, uh, suggesting that it wasn't the violent thing that we saw in our own videos. That, uh, but uh, the, the, the gold medal, the Congressional gold medal, Speaker Pelosi said, would be going to the Capitol Police, D.C. Police, and the Smithsonian Institution, all of whom uh, participated in trying to quell the riot there. Twelve Republicans voted against it. Uh, Andy Harris in Maryland, um, the lone Republican, uh, said it was a stunt. Uh, Bob Good, who's a new member of Congress from Middle Virginia, the 5th District, uh, he said it was a politically con- political convenience for Pelosi to try to put Republicans on the spot. So these 12 uh, Republicans voted against it, most of them from the southern states, uh, and they just simply don't want to do anything that would suggest the, that the insurrection that occurred on January 6th was, in fact, an insurrection. Madam County Executive, as I said, I know Prince Georgians who work on the Capitol Police. What was your reaction to that piece of news? Well, you know, one of the heroes who was recognized uh, was a Prince Georgian who actually redirected the insurrectionist. Um, away from the office of Nancy Pelosi. And so we are um, very proud uh, of him and the others who did what they could to um, to try to uh, quash this insurrection. But uh, Officer Goodman is a Prince Georgian. He's a hero. We are so very proud of, of his efforts. And Tom Sherwood, local Asian activists rallied in this area after the shootings in Atlanta. Um, what what's going on there? Well, because of the in my hometown of Atlanta, because of the shooting there, the man who shot three different uh, uh, sec, uh, massage services and killed um, um, six Asian uh, women. Uh, there's been an outrage. There's been such a horrible increase in in discrimination against Asians and Pacific Islanders in this in this country over the past year. Uh, the shooting, the police in, the, in, the, in Atlanta were saying, well, this guy had a bad day, which was a terrible thing to say. But they said that, you know, he was troubled by his sex addiction, and so he went uh, in search of shooting people. Uh, but it just, was an, uh, it just highlighted the, uh, the terrible situation we are in this country now where, where aggression against people, discrimination, and hatred against people is so open. And so uh, in this case... We had the demonstration in the District of Columbia in the middle of the week where a couple hundred people showed up to express their concern that Asian Americans across this country are being targeted because of President Trump's you know, Kung flu and other racist things that he has said. 
and that more needs to be done to, to stop it. We'll be discussing the anti-Asian sentiment on the state on the show on this coming Monday. You might want to tune in for that. Right now, we're talking with Angela Also Brooks, the Prince George's County Executive. And Angela Also Brooks, let's start with vaccines. Who is eligible to receive the vaccine in Prince George's County right now, and how many residents have been vaccinated? So we have moved into Phase One C and are quickly moving, actually, into Phase Two. Um, and so we are um, aggressively expanding our vaccination program. We have uh, vaccinated uh, well over 50 percent, closer to 60 percent of those who are uh, 65 and older. Uh, and we continue to uh, to vaccinate, especially as supply becomes available. That has been the uh, predominant challenge that we've had, not only in Prince George's, but in the state and across the country, uh, was the supply of vaccines. So, for example, we started out with 975 vaccines that we were guaranteed as a county uh, per uh, per week. And uh, we have 120,000 individuals who are on our wait list waiting to be vaccinated. Um, so this has been one of the challenges we've had. We've now been guaranteed 5,700 vaccines per week. Uh, and combined with our partners, uh, we are able now to vaccinate thousands uh, of our residents. So we're very pleased that we're moving through and increasing the numbers of people, as well as opening up different phases and moving quickly to phase two within the next week. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan has cited vaccine hesitancy as the reason that African-American and Latino residents in Prince George's County haven't gotten the vaccine. One, do you think vaccine hesitancy is the main obstacle? And before you respond, we got an email from David who says, there's a perception that Governor Hogan's administration is stifling vaccine equity and fairness by placing over two-thirds of the state-run mass vaccination sites in locales that are predominantly white, the Republican voting regions. Do you have any thoughts about this issue? So I guess I'm asking you two questions in one. Well, none of the information we have so far bears out uh, the belief that hesitancy has been the primary issue for us. Again, we have 120,000 of our residents who are on a waiting list wanting the vaccine. Uh, so that has not been an issue for us. The issue has been the supply uh, at the mass vaccination site here. We had a, a very uh, serious concern that we expressed to the governor uh, regarding the fact that when the numbers came out and numbers just speak for themselves, uh, close to 90% of the vaccines that were administered at the site in our county went to people who didn't live here. Uh, that has since been uh, addressed. We're beginning to address it with the governor. We've met repeatedly with them, and we are pleased that they set aside at our request uh, a number of vaccines to be reserved only for Prince Georgians at that site and also opened up, in addition to that, a mass vaccination site that we were so pleased to open at the First Baptist Church of Glen Arden earlier this week that will allow us to administer uh, uh, at least 1,000 vaccines per day at that site. And so we are really pleased um, that that our concerns have been heard and we're hearing and seeing more and more vaccine delivered to Prince George's County every day for us to administer. So we are really happy that we can uh, get our, our residents protected. Tom Sherwood. Um, I want to ask you a vaccine question, but like Kojo says, you got to get your questions in early because time runs out. So before I ask you whether or not Governor Hogan has messed up the vaccine program in the state, I want to ask you, and you're not surprised, <laughs> when, will, when will you let the people know, of Prince George's County know, whether you're going to run for re-election as county executive, after all, it's almost April of 2021, or that you will be running for governor? You've raised a lot of money. You've raised more money recently than, than uh, Peter Francho, who is a candidate for governor. When are you going to get off the 
Uh, I love my job that I have now. I love, I'm, I'm honored to serve the people of Prince George's County. And tell us, when will you let us know your decision? If you're Bef- not going to say before, it today, uh, when will before you? you respond, before you respond, let Wallace in Bowie, Maryland get in on this action. Wallace, your turn. Oh, Joe, Tom, hi. Uh, Executive, also Brooks, I think you're doing a fantastic job. And Tom stole some of my thunder. I was going to ask if you were considering running for governor or not. She is you're considering it. She is. <laughs> well, so, you know what? Thank you so much, Wallace. And uh, let me just say this. So, Tom, in, in direct answer to your question, I'm never getting off that. I love my job and I love Prince Jordan. That <laughs> will be true. true every, it's true every day of the week. It's true night and day. Um, And in terms of uh, considering governor, what I am most focused on right this moment, and you know, and it's no secret, I've never deviated from this. I am so excited um, about the vision that we have for Prince George's County. And in this moment, I'm running for reelection for county executive. I I am I am uh, very, very committed uh, to what I am uh, uh, doing in Prince George's County. I am not, uh, I have some things I promised Prince Georgians and I am going to continue to work to make sure that I deliver those things to Prince Georgians. And at the in, at some time in the future, uh, when the opportunities uh, pre- present themselves to do um, something different, um, you know, I'll consider it at that point. But in this moment, I am completely committed to getting my county through this pandemic making sure we're able to stand up and address the inequities that have been unearthed okay. in health care and food delivery and education and other areas. And uh, I, I love Prince Georgians, and I think they love me, too. And uh, and I'm really, really honored to continue. Wallace, okay. Wallace, Wallace, Wallace you're going to have to wait for a while. Go ahead, Tom. I was just I want to make sure I heard you correctly that right right now your focus is to run for re-election as county executive because you've got a lot more work to do and you do like the job that doesn't rule out your running for governor one I talked to someone who's really wants you to run he said you're the strongest this is him not me you're the strongest best candidate for the Democrats and are you really going to give the Republicans a shot at keeping control of the governor's office for another four years um, if 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 you don't run for governor, will you, who would you support? Or is it too early to say? Yeah, all of those things are too early to say. Um, but I can tell you this: that I regard public service as the highest honor. And the thing that wakes me up, and and you know, the thing I go to sleep with that night is whether I am doing what I have promised that I would do, whether my word is good, okay. whether you know my actions. And so, right now, the thing I judge my work against really is you know where I can be most useful. And, okay, uh, well. and I know that at some point I'll be useful in the state, but I think but Prince George's is also a part of the state, a very strong and important part of it. It is the economic engine of the state. And, uh, and if Prince George's is strong, so is Maryland. Okay, one last question. Thank you, Kojo. Have you talked to either former Governor Paris Glendening, who wrote an op-ed recently about how he made a mistake uh, on uh, sentencing? I think I can't remember. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. My notes are not clear here. And uh, have you talked to Paris Glendening, uh, your predecessor, Rashern Baker, or Congressman Anthony Brown, who some people think might want to run for governor again like he did in 2014? Have you talked to them about this or not? You know what? The former governor has not uh, spoken with me about his op-ed. I, I, I have seen that he, I think he talked about, um, was it um, parole? I yes. think that was yes. the concern parole, that he. Right. I he think that was the concern that he raised. Yeah, you know what? I've not had a, a chance to speak with Governor Glendening um, about that. He's not. I, I, he's not reached out to me about it. But I have talked to Glo- Governor Glendening about many other things. 
Uh, he's been a wonderful friend, um, and but he's not talked to me about uh, his concern about parole. Okay, I'm going to put you on the probably will run for governor until you tell me something different. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Well, you know, but the thing you helped me say is I do love my job. I'm, I really do. That's never changing. I'm so grateful for that. Last week, Prince George's County loosened some COVID-9 restrictions. Businesses like restaurants, gyms, movie theaters, and houses of worship can reopen at 50% capacity. This followed a statewide reopening that ended all capacity limits for those businesses, although they still need to enforce six-foot social distancing. Why did you decide to lift those restrictions? Was it just to follow the kind of statewide reopenings? No, you know, we've been watching our numbers, and we are really pleased that we have, at least for the last two weeks, we've been below 5% in terms of our, of our positivity rate. In fact, we're so uh, close, we're actually close to 3%. We're at exactly 4% uh, positivity rate. We also have 15 new cases per 100,000 residents, which is a significant improvement uh, from our high of 58.8% on January, just January 8th. So you'll see that we're moving in a positive direction. Uh, we are still very uh, cautious because as you well know, um, Prince George's County was just devastated uh, by this virus. And we remain at a medium risk where our infection rate is concerned, about 0.95. So we're moving more slowly than the rest of the state. We've been cautious, but we did believe that our numbers uh, really did justify us opening up uh, a bit. And so we've gone to 50 percent uh, maximum capacity for houses of worship. Movie theaters are now open, gyms, indoor dining and, and banquet halls. So we've, we've opened up some. We're going to continue to watch our numbers and and make good decisions for Prince Jordans. Here's Kate in College Park. Kate, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, It's great news um, to hear about the influx of vaccines. And I think um, a lot of folks like myself feel like we can finally start thinking towards what comes next and when that might be. Um, And I would just love to hear what does come next. And um, what what things look like? What is the county doing to make sure that it's ready? Um, what might, work might be going on behind the scenes and so forth? Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Kate. Well, let me just first of all, thank you and thank all the rest of our residents who've done such a beautiful job uh, in helping us to recover, caring for each other. And I can tell you we're working on a number of levels. Rental assistance, uh, we have offered now to make sure that all of our residents are able to recover from this. We uh, we were able to use about $10 million last year. We're using more of that. Uh, we're continuing to support businesses, small businesses. Um, we're going to make sure that we are, our economic development is just booming uh, in Prince George's County right now around areas like New Carrollton, Suitland, Maryland, our downtown Largo area. Uh, look for a lot of investment along the Blue Line corridor from Capitol Heights to Morgan Boulevard. Uh, but it's explosive. We're so excited uh, about what's coming in amphitheater. Say hello to that for those who saw me out at the Meriwether Post Pavilion. Guess what? We are now planning to listen to live music in Prince George's very soon. We're going to be breaking ground on an amphitheater. And we're opening our new hospital in June, cutting the ribbon ribbon on our new, brand new hospital here in Largo. Uh, So we have a lot to look forward to. Uh, We have a lot of work to do together, but mostly closing up these inequities. Help me, please. With the food deserts, you all saw I was in a fight recently about these uh, food deserts. We want beer and wine licenses like they have in in D.C. and Virginia and other places so that we can incentivize having uh, quality grocers come into some of our underserved areas uh, where they tell me that the profit margin makes it difficult for them to get into some of our low-income, low-access areas. We have got to close up those food gaps. 
Well, I was going to ask you about that later, but you've already mentioned it. So, Sharon, but that's all right. Sharon in Northern Virginia, I think, is going to take us where I'd like to go next. Sharon, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. County Executive, it's Sharon Taylor, an old friend of yours from the Sheriff's Office. Yes, hi, Sharon. Good. Listen, I. This is what we do here. We bring old friends together. But go ahead, Sharon. I I I retired in November, but I just want to say to you that I thought. You and your team did a magnificent job on dealing with COVID quickly and continuously because, you know, I'm communications. And I believe that if you want people to know something, you have to talk to them. And you did that regularly. And I thought it was fantastic. Um, secondly, Thank though, you, Sharon. You're, you're so welcome. But on the on the policing thing, I'm so, you know, that's where I came in in Prince George's County. And I'm so disappointed that we keep doing studies as if we haven't built a roadmap in Prince George's County for police reform. And the number one thing we should know is the absolute leadership of policing starts at the top. Melvin High at the Prince George's County Police Department built a roadmap for how you get out of an MOU investigation and a consent decree by doing the work. The roadmap is there. And, and, you know, I, I understand that the problem is... Well, allow me, to, allow me to interrupt you, Sharon, because we don't have a great deal of time left. And I want our audience to know what we're talking about here. Current and former Prince George's County police officers are in an ongoing racial discrimination lawsuit against the department. Last month, a report compiled by an expert retained by those officers detailed multiple allegations of command officers using racist statements and not facing consequences. The report also claimed that one corporal received at least eight complaints from black male civilians about inappropriately touching their genitalia during traffic stops. And Sharon, of course, is talking about the reforms that were put into place under former Chief uh, Melvin High. Angela, also, Brooks, what's your response to all of this? Okay, so there's a lot to say there. First of all, so the lawsuit that you referenced was filed two weeks after I came into office regarding matters that happened uh, before I got uh, here as county executive. And one of the things we've done over the last year is to put together a police reform task force Uh, that I organized in July. They came back in December with 50 recommendations. We have uh, accepted 46 and are in the process right now of implementing those reforms, some really amazing reforms that we have included in our budget, uh, including reforms that allowed me to hire a a person who is now over equity and diversity for the uh, police department, separated the inspector general from the police department so that those complaints can be heard in a neutral fashion. Uh, We're working on incentivizing having officers who actually live in Prince George's County serve the residents of Prince George's County. Uh, So we are really aggressively moving forward. Listen out soon for me to to make an announcement regarding a new police chief. Uh, So we have made aggressive uh, moves forward. But let me just say this about um, studies. We didn't sit here and study and study and study. I have those 46 reforms, including mental health. Uh, I'd like to talk about them at some point. I don't have enough time today, but we are making some really uh, aggressive, I think, and forward-thinking changes to the way that we will uh, police. Um, But let me just say this. It doesn't take a lot of talent to identify the problem. I've said that over and over again. We know well what the problem is. It does take more time and more thought to actually implement something that will work. I am in the process of implementing changes uh, talking about it, thinking about it, all of that doesn't, it, to spot the issue doesn't take talent. To implement a change, to actually cause the reform to happen takes much more intention, uh, takes much more investment, and that's where we are right now. Is we well, know you're, that you're, there's a problem, and we're going propos- to fix it. 
Your proposed budget includes a $23 million decrease in funding to the police department. Why did you, de- why did you decide to take away that funding and where will that well, money go instead? Oh, I'm glad you said that, Tom. Thank you, Tom. You're the best partner ever. So the $20 million I forgot to say is, guess what? I shifted $20 million away from a public safety training facility for the police to build a behavioral health facility that will offer both inpatient and outpatient mental health services to our residents. This facility now will deal with mental health care and addictions care, a longstanding need that we have had. So I moved away the $20 million you're talking about uh, to make sure that we are treating individuals who suffer from mental health. We have 70% of the people we arrest every day and take to our Department of Corrections are intoxicated when they get there. Another third are mentally ill. So rather than treat people in jail who need help with mental health care and addictions care, we have chosen to okay. deal with them in dignity in a mental health facility. And that's now, what we've done, reallocated it. Here's the real Tom Sherwood. Tom? Okay, yes. Um, being a county executive, there are two dozen counties in the, in the state. It's very difficult dealing with the COVID virus. Uh, Governor Hogan has been praised for some things and criticized for others, including the recent announcement to reopen the state without advance notice. I realize if you were a candidate for governor, I want to ask you this, regardless whether you acknowledge that or not. What kind of grade would you give Governor Hogan on dealing with the COVID uh, matter in the state of Maryland? You know what? We've all been praised and criticized. That's the nature of being in public service, you know, is that some days we do things well, some days not so well. Um, I don't know that I judge others who are in public service. I've mostly just tried to make sure that, you know, when necessary, I've criticized the governor. Uh, When it wasn't necessary, I've I've, on other times. So in other words, I have to choose the weapon that I use on any given day to protect our residents. Some days it's criticism. Other days it's diplomacy. Um, But at the end of the day, we just want to get things done. And I don't know that I grade him or any other person, but we've had challenges. And when 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 they have been, I'm sorry. I I apologize for interrupting, but I know we're almost out of time. If you were governor, what would you have done uh, differently that the governor Hogan has done that you would do differently? You know what? I think the communication at times, the communication could have been better. I think also just kind of having a more uniform approach. Uh, to some of the things like testing and vaccines so that the jurisdictions didn't compete against each other. You see it now. I mean, it's just been a kind of, you know, sometimes too much competition between the jurisdictions. So a more coordinated approach to that and just making those decisions. Um, and the communication, I would say, you know, with the uh, locals before announcing things, for example, we had a, a problem with that that we found out at press conferences, uh, what the changes would be. I think those kinds of things are things that could have been done, done differently. But Overall, you know what? We work together. We're working now to increase the vaccine and to serve uh, our residents. The governor was here uh, this week. He's been here probably three times in the last couple of weeks uh, after we requested that. So I'm pleased that that I'm able to serve my residents. And honestly, that's most what's most important. And in terms of the grade, we'll let the public do that. Um, the praise and criticism belongs to the public and all the rest of us are just working stiff trying to get it done. I only got about 30 seconds left, but there's a push by two state delegates to remove authority over schools from your office and return it to having a superintendent while also revamping the school board. Are you for or against that? Oh, Lord, we need to revamp the school board. We do. Now, whatever we do, the public can decide which way to do that. But the school board has been in this dysfunction that we've seen over the last eight, 10 years uh, has has caused embarrassment to our county. Uh, we have to be able to work together on behalf of children to keep the acrimony and discord and infighting uh, away from our kids. We have a lot of work to do building schools. We have a, a now uh, a, a, an $8 billion backlog in repairs and construction. 
we can't afford to have the board fighting each other. So whatever would make them work together a little better and, and, and to do away with the acrimony, I'm for that. Angela Alsobrooks, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for having me. Thank you so much. You all take care. The Politics Hour was produced by Sidney Granon coming up Monday in the wake of a shooting rampage that left eight people dead at Asian-run spas in Georgia. We discuss how to combat the rise in bigotry and violence against Asian-Americans. Then, Kojo for Kids welcomes singing sensation Alicia Gamble, who grew up in Tacoma Park and went on to major roles in musical theater at the Kennedy Center and across the nation. That all starts Monday at noon. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Do you plan on having a wonderful weekend? on time, Sherwood? <clears throat> yes, I'm going to get on my bicycle after several months of not doing so. Well, maybe I'll run into you on the trail someplace. But you have a great weekend, and thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. <laughs>